there is what appears to be in the long distance shot a red ball and uh, it will move down the flagstaff they'll watch that digital clock along with us and the crowd as it gets closer and closer will begin to scream and yell and just go bananas to 1982 five four three two one happy new year I hated to feel the pain of being on stage without Randy being there going through exactly the same thing. It's the same set, the first thing you hear is Randy playing Diary of a Madman, you know, lights come down and it's like, oh my God, if you have been in denial all day long, reality is going to hit you right in, the, right in the head with a huge hammer. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Sabbath Bloody Podcast of a Madman. <laughs> my name is Rye and... It's good to have you all aboard. It's Wednesday. That's when I've been dropping these fuckers, you know, keeping it consistent for you in case you've lost track of time. I know I have. <laughs> are you still locked down, man? What phase are you in? <laughs> well, I'm in the phase where I spend hours living in the past vicariously through a certified madman named Ozzy Osbourne. And you are too. You're tuned in here anyway. And we're having fun, aren't we? I'm loving all this stuff. Certainly hope you listeners are keeping well out there. Hopefully this show gives you a little something-something. We've got a packed one here today, too. 1982 is fucking crazy, man. So I won't waste any more time here. Just don't forget to check in with the rest of the network. No distancing required with these guys. Slam them into your ear holes. Nate and John over at Deep Purple Podcast. Old Simple Man there over at Skinnered Reconsidered. I actually said his real name the first time I recorded this, so I had to reset. So, you know, got to maintain his desire to stay anonymous. But hey, he's my boy. So, so of course, we can't forget the chairman, T-Bone Mathley. The man without a pod, but he needs to get one. But it's the Deep Dive Podcast Network, son. Okay. You ready for a wild one, lads? Get your tickets ready. It's a full train here tonight. Lots to yap about. Nineteen eighty-two. This is gonna be a packed show, lads. There's a lot in the spreadsheet of doom here today. So let's just crack on. We're only two dates into the official Diary of a Madman tour. The North American swing had already commenced in late December. And this was essentially the first leg of the diary cycle too, given all the cancellations of a madman back in Europe. And as we resume here, the lads are out in the desert now. They're playing Phoenix on New Year's Day, and then they're rolling through the West Coast proper after that. Heading southbound. And I think Mr. Cambridge, Lindsay Bridgewater, he's back behind the curtain too, tickling those ivories. Actually, you know what? This was around the time when they brought Bridgewater out onto the stage and put him in a hooded robe to make him more part of the stage set than a featured member, really. They had him looking like one of those blokes on the Mob Rules cover. Hilarious. And definitely an Aussie piss take there on poor Lindsay, as he was kind of Aussie's punching bag the entire time that he was in the lineup. You don't look like a fucking rock star, man. Put this hood on so we can keep getting the fucking birds. <laughs> Ugly bastard. <laughs> Sorry, that's mean. I don't even know what the guy looks like, honestly. <laughs> I've only seen footage of him in the hooded robe. And let me tell you, the monk costume keyboardists were just the start of it here. Aussie concerts were getting very theatrical, to say the least. Anyone that's looking slightly normal is not allowed in. 
and we advise anyone that is pregnant or, is, or, or who is suffering from a nervous disposition is advised not to, return, not to attend. And the ASI organization takes no responsibility for your mental health after the show. Castles, dwarfs, fucking laser beams. <laughs> and they were interactive as well. Apparently, at the end of each show, instead of throwing buckets of water on the crowd like he did later in his career, Ozzy would catapult rancid meat and other leftovers from butcher shops, such as stomachs and intestines, at the audience. <laughs> I don't know if that is just some bullshit that spun off one isolated event or something, but Ozzy does confirm it in an interview here that I'll drop in. We, we, uh, we took a, I always wanted to do like a, uh, I, like, I like sick humor, I like uh, sick kind of things, like, uh, like after the war things, you know? As long as it's funny, you know? And a bit outrageous. And I always liked custard pie fights, you know. So I thought, I, was, I took the diary of a madman tour out on the road, and I, and I put it on the ad said, bring your own meat, and we'll have a meat fight at the show, like, so. Like, I'd throw buckets of meat out there, and they'd throw, like, a few steaks at first, but then as the tour was progressing, like, things were coming on these stage, like, from other planets, like, you know, like, dead dogs and all kinds of things were coming on stage. If anyone out there caught him on the madman cycle did this actually happen like at every show that's pretty fucking rank if you ask me i mean i've done the guar show when i was a kid you know raincoats in the front row with all the fake blood splattering around that was good fun and i do an alice cooper show no problem catch his fucking head from the guillotine or whatever i love that macabre stuff but to get pelted with like a legit fucking goddamn sheep spleen when i'm trying to take in some goodbye to romance that's not my idea of a good time and what always pops into my head when I hear these tales of pure fuckery is what would our scrawny little music prodigy, Randy Rhodes, think of all of it? <laughs> From stage left, watching as Ozzy spins some cow stomach above his head. <laughs> There's one infamous occasion that comes up here, too, early in the madman cycle involving an animal of sorts. On January 20th, 1982, in Des Moines, you all know this story, the bat. So let's just let... Fucking Ozzy give his spiel about it. A shortened kind of version here, as the story has been told many a time. They would often throw, like, rubber ducks and, you know, chickens and things. And this bat thing landed on this. And I thought it was, a, it was one of them rubber things. And I got, I, and, I, and I picked this thing up, and I bit into it. And, and I look on the side of the stage, and Sharon's going, Sharon's going, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was rushed around to a hospital. And, I, and for anyone who watches this, I... I don't advise anyone to bite into a bat because they're one of the world's biggest carriers of rabies. Now, if, you, if you've ever had the misfortune of having rabies shots, you'll know what I'm talking about because they, they ain't very comfortable. It's like having a tattoo with a road drill, you know. I, cre- I mean, I've got to be honest, we, we created it as much as it created itself and snowballed. We did, we did a lot, lot, lot to provoke it along the way purely because of my drunkenness. I mean, I'd get crazy drunk, like dive through a window or something, you know, I was just mad. So there's a relatively truncated version, but he alludes to the kind of embellishment that this story has taken on. It was around this time that they soon realized, they being Ozzy and Sharon, that they could generate publicity just by letting Ozzy be Ozzy and getting him in the newspapers that way. Maybe they don't need... Papa Arden's dirty money and mafia promoters to fill the arenas. Just some good old-fashioned shock rock publicity will do the trick, right? Maybe, just maybe, 
those two can pull it off on their own, right? Just the two of them. <laughs> the gears start turning here anyway, and Sharon starts taking steps to kind of assert control over the Aussie product. Don probably thought nothing of it, as she was working for him at the time, and she is his daughter, after all, but there's a big kind of falling out here between devil and daughter. Don was again in control of the Sabbath, who had split ways with Dio, and it's partially Don who kind of launches the whole glorious born-again cycle of Sabbath with Ian Gillen. You guys know that I live for the Born Again album, right? But we've covered that all before. Like, go back and listen to the Born Again Sabbath Bloody podcast. The diary tour, for fuck's sake. Ozzy's condition at the time, vocally he was great, but the tour was really taking its toll. And the big shot in the dark that he took for fucking the rabies there, I guess it didn't mix well with the pills and the cognac he'd been drinking, because a couple shows later, after the whole bad incident, Oz collapses during the set. He's rushed to the hospital, reportedly from illness caused by the rabies shots. Either way, the whole bat story, it becomes synonymous with his image. And like I mentioned before, all I can think about is Randy during this. Like, to be that level of a fucking musical genius and have this maniac as your leader, it's no wonder that he was allegedly fed up with the scene during this tour. And here's Ozzy actually speaking about that specific dynamic, because... Randy was a straight shooter with Ozzy, and he let it be known that the road wasn't for him. We were traveling through America on tour, and it was about a two days, three days, not much more, than, and he said to me, you know what, Ozzy, I don't want to be a rock and roll star anymore. I go, what do you want about, Randy? He says, I, I know what it feels like. I felt what it's like to taste the fruits of what rock and roll stardom gives you. I now want to go to uni- university to learn classical music. I go, are you crazy? And he goes, no, I want to, I, I, it's not that important to me, you know. My, what, what's important to me, I, I'm saying that, well, he said, what, what's important to me is becoming a classical guitar player. On February 18th, as the Madman Tour continues through the southern states, this is where you get another infamous Aussie tale. Ozzy pissing on the Alamo. I got up one, one morning in, in, in San Antonio and got dressed in one of my wife's evening dresses with a bottle of Courvoisier again and took a piss up the uh, Alamo wall and got arrested. <laughs> and it didn't go down too well, you know, because the, the Alamo is like a national shrine. And uh, I, I, I seem to remember the policeman saying to me, well, what... What would you do if I was to urinate at Buckingham Palace? And I said, to be truthful with you, mate, I don't give a damn, I don't live there. You know? <laughs> now, he didn't actually piss on the Alamo. From what I've read, it was a monument next to the Alamo. Not the Alamo itself. So calm down, Texas. <laughs> a little public urination never hurt anyone, right? But the Asman was banned from San Antonio because of that. And he later had to do a bunch of public apologies just to be allowed to play in the state again. And again, Randy Rhodes and this fucking guy, right? <laughs> I can play Beethoven behind my head, and this guy can't even control his bladder. <laughs> I'm over here with my polka dot V playing my D minor 7 fallopian <laughs> harmonic scale inverted. Sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to do a Randy Rhodes impression, it's not working. But it's essentially Garth from Wayne's World, right? Wow. You're amazing, dude. Thanks. I like to play. 
No disrespect intended with that impression, so pipe down, fanboys. <laughs> Fuck, I'm just trying to keep it light here for a second, because shit's about to get heavy. I guarantee I'll catch shit for that bad roads impersonation. <laughs> but one of the most highly respected rock guitarists of all time he is. Randy was still locked in that neoclassical training regiment instilled by his mama D. Fretboard geeks dropped to their knees at the mere mention of Randy's name, so I can't take the piss out of him. And even back then, before the band's performance on February 2nd, Rhodes actually did a little guitar seminar, which he would sometimes do between gigs. Or he would take lessons while the others were getting pissed up on their days off. Rhodes was as much a student as he was a master of his craft. So let's just let the kid talk about his craft here some, to balance out these hacky, same old Aussie debauchery stories that I've been playing in the clips today. Respect to the humble master here. I'm very nervous about speaking in front of people, so I mean, you got to help me out with questions, and if there's anything I can help you out, I'd be glad to do it. Uh, when you write a lead, do you go for a melody type deal, or do you go for more of a technical dazzle type? <laughs> well, it, it depends you know, on the whatever the progression is and the, the sort of mood of the song. And it's a good question because a lot of people sometimes when they go to put a lead down, sometimes they think of themselves too much first and they want to put it all out. But you got to think what kind of song it is. You've got to put something that suits the song really well. And it's great to do both. I mean, if it has a melodic progression, you know, I'd like to play melodic. Thanks. I like to play. It's really hard to just sit up here and play anything. So if there's something you want me to play, diagrammatic, sure. It's like it'd be comparable to an A with a flatted fifth. So in other words, you got a root third, then you flat the E. Use with the open E, you get gives you that dissonance. And you got a seventh, which is a G. A minor 9. The riff is. Keep going. Incredible. Next level. Musical genius. There's no denying that. The goddamn riffs on Diary, man, my god. And me taking the piss is really only because he intimidates the fuck out of me. And honestly, Randy transcends most of the pretentious aspect of being overly technical and showy. As he mentions there in the soloing approach, he just wrote fucking great songs. Okay, unfortunately though, we've now arrived in March of 1982. According to police, the three were on an early morning joyride after staying up over 24 hours, while some members of the Ozzy Osbourne band slept in their tour bus parked next to the house. The other three buzzed overhead, circling the bus three times. On the fourth time, they didn't make it. Uh, the plane had been flying treetop level roughly three times, and then after uh, the fourth pass, he tipped the bus on the opposite side, and then it went over the top of the bus. The plane did and hit a pine tree in the front yard, and after it hit the pine tree, it nosedived into the home, 
The home then burst into flames and killed were the band's lead guitarist, hairdresser, and bus driver, 36-year-old Andrew Icock, who was also the plane's pilot. They were flying in a Beechcraft Bonanza like this one. No one was injured in the home, which is reportedly owned by country music singer Jerry Calhoun. The band was on a tour which included a concert this weekend at the T-Bowl. Police say the band's bus driver lived nearby and brought the band here for a brief stop before continuing on. Near Leesburg, Marty Salt, Channel 9, Eyewitness News. March 19th, 1982. That was the newscast of it there. Randy Rhodes, along with the band Seamstress, Rachel Youngblood, and the roadie who was actually flying the plane, they all sadly perished when the wing clips the tour bus while doing some flyby fuckery. I can't really comment on this too much. It's just a tragedy that Randy was taken at such a young age, 25 at the time. We'll have more tributes to him as this series goes on for sure. His legacy never fades. But for today, I'll simply raise a glass. I got my salty dog here hitting the tequila because it's fucking hot. Let's play a little Randy Rhodes acoustic magic here, though. To cheers to the man. Once more, fret it at Cordron. sad about his death, but we should all be thankful that we got to have his talent in the world for any length of time. And you gotta feel for Ozzy, too. I know a lot of people play it up like he was using Randy, and they were destined to break up, but fuck, man, who knows? I've even heard from some sources, too, that Ozzy ran up to the plane after and tried to, like, pull Randy from the wreck. I don't know if that's all over-dramatized or not, but witnessing the crash either way, you can only imagine how fucked up that would be (laughs) and on somebody with such an already fragile psyche as Ozzy you'd also think that this kind of tragedy would be enough to cancel the tour and perhaps hang it up for a while but a mere six days later March 25th 1982 Ozzy appears on Late Night with David Letterman thank you boys the former leader of Black Sabbath Ozzy Osbourne is known for his frenetic stage performances and his outlandish antics. It says here, the word madman almost always precedes his name. Welcome, please, madman, Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, uh, you know, I want, I, I'm uh, happy you're here. I know that uh, recently there's been a, a, a professional and a personal tragedy in your oh, life. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, I'm surprised that you went ahead uh, with your commitment to be here, and I appreciate that. And I know you wanted to take a well, minute here to explain. All I can say is, in the last week, guys, people out there, I've lost two of the greatest people in my life. But it ain't going to stop me because I'm for rock and roll, and rock and roll is for the people. And I love people, and that's what I'm about. 
Uh, did you do you wanted to, to to mention something about the circumstances surrounding? Uh, well, it's all it's uh, it's all under the investigation at the moment. I was asleep on the bus as usual. The plane hit the bus. Everything went up, and so like it's. A, I mean, I don't really want to talk about okay. it. Okay. You know? Okay. I certainly understand that, but uh, uh, nonetheless, I uh, appreciate you. Uh, coming by here tonight. Now, will, the concert the tour momentarily well, suspended. Is it, no, it's momentarily suspended, but I'm, I'm going to continue because Randy would have, would have liked me to continue. So would Rachel. Uh -huh. And I'm not going to stop because you can't kill rock and roll. These are the seam, your seamstress and also your uh, guitar yeah. player. Uh, so when will the thing the tour well, be we're, renewed? We're going for April one. Uh -huh. And uh, with God's luck, we'll do it. You know. Uh -huh. But I'm going to get out there and do it. It's the best thing I can do, you know. Okay. It's the only thing I can do. Well, uh, again, uh, my thanks for coming by, and uh, you're an interesting person. Very. Let's have a look at your neck again. No, Ozzy. Ozzy Osbourne, <laughs> folks. Uh, we'll be right back. So it sounds like they already knew they would resume the tour in April. So right away, management almost heartlessly starts trying to fill the void, the unfillable void left by Randy Rhodes. So strap in. Reset, because the replacements are going to come hard and fast here. I might need to grab a fresh cocktail here, too. Stand by. There we go. The power of the pause button compels me. I got a fresh cocktail now. I really should have done this particular year as a two-parter. Like, so much happens in 1982 that's ridiculous. And it kind of feels weird just rolling on here from that tragedy, but that's the madness of this show. So, set to resume tour here. Gary Moore, actually, who we talked about in the first or second episode of Podcast of a Madman, he was connected with Ozzy through management, so he was the first one approached to replace Rhodes, but he declines that offer. And I recall hearing that Rudy Sarzo's brother was even offered the gig. But simultaneously to that, Irish guitarist Bernie Torme was promised the gig by Jet Records directly. So it's like everyone's scrambling here. They ain't looking for a long-term solution. They just want to cash in on these gigs that have already been lined up. And with all that shuffle, the aforementioned Bernie Torme does end up joining the band. No rehearsals, none of his gear even. Just one guitar that he brought across with him on the plane from the UK. I guess actually when you think about it, he's probably playing through Randy's old rig even, which is insane to think about. Obviously not the way you want to come into a band per se, but that's how the Ardens operated. And Fair play to Bernie, he does do what he can under the circumstances. Just to give him a little bit of respect here on the show, though, because we are deep-diving this shit, after all. I have a clip from a radio interview that he did recalling his brief but harrowing experience with the madman. Here's Bernie Torme. It basically happened, I, th I think, because I've been on jets. Mm. Um, I kind of said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Only It's only temporary, I can only do um, a month. Okay, no problem. Um, the problem was it was um, David Arden who I was uh, talking to. And David had also said, Bernie, it's $2,000 a week. And I was thinking, fucking hell, I've got no money. You know, this will pay the rent for a while anyway. You know? <laughs> so we hadn't had uh, rehearsals. I played four tracks on the auditions. Um, I'd only found out after that what the step was and the arrangements. And an awful lot of the arrangements were completely different. But there was an extra track that hadn't been recorded. So I had to learn everything. And this is all on a fucking cassette. Mm. And the other thing was no one in the band knew 
what Randy played. They were not guitar players, you know? <laughs> so it was, you know, here I am, freaking trying to, you know, on Walkman trying to hear things. I'm jet lagged to fuck, I'm in terror, you know? Because it was just like, it was so, first gig, I didn't have my pedal board, I didn't have my amps, I didn't have a spare, my spare guitar, and there was um, D-tunes, so, and Ozzy's going, I fucking hate Stratocasters, <laughs> why can't you play Gibson, you know, I said, I don't like Gibson, so I'll play a Strat, you fucking sound like shit, you know, so it was like, and what was your feeling when you walked off stage the first night? Was it relief or was it thank God for that? It was um, relief yeah. because I hadn't um, died. You know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one had shot me and they wasn't thought about it and the rest of the band. You know, and, um, they were all really nice to me. I mean, you know, everyone. It was just a horrible time, yeah. you know, because here I am on stage, you know, at the point anyone looks across, and I mean, Playing in a band, it's about that bond mm. between you know the band and the audience. At the point anyone looked across at me, it was blatantly obvious that you know they looked across because they thought it was okay, mm. or they thought I'd made a fucking horrible mistake. <laughs> but if they thought it was okay, it was oh shit, it's not right. Mm. Insane, yeah. Bernie's good crack about it there, as any proper dub would be. A near impossible gig to sub in for. But as promised on Letterman, April 1st, 1982, in the little town of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, <laughs> the tour resumes. Let's take a peek here at the set list that Bernie had to try to learn on the fly here. This should be fun. It's essentially Randy's set list, too. Well, you get Over the Mountain, Mr. Crowley, Mr. Crowley, as he says. Uh, Crazy Train, Revolution, Mother Earth. That would be a tricky one to learn. Uh, Steal Away the Night, Suicide Solution. These would all be kind of tricky to learn. And then Bernie gets to go off script a little bit with a guitar solo, followed by Tommy's drum solo. And then it's Goodbye to Romance, I Don't Know, Believer, Flying High Again, Iron Man, Children of the Grave, Paranoid to Close. So no real curveballs in the set. That's exactly what Randy was playing, right down to the Sabbath jams at the end. They could have actually probably made it easier on Bernie and done more Sabbath, because apparently, like everybody, he was a, more of a Sabbath fan than an Aussie fan at that point, so he would have probably known more of the tracks. The gigs that Bernie plays, of course, don't go over very well. Randy was the reason a lot of these fans probably bought tickets in the first place. And after only a handful of shows, Bernie informs management and Aussie that he wanted out ASAP. By all accounts... It was a respectful transition, though. Torme agrees to stay on as long as they need. So enter Brad Gillis, the guitarist of a band called Night Ranger. I guess they were just called Ranger at that time. I don't really fuck with them, so I don't really know their history. What's their big hit? Sister Christian? <laughs> that? Yeah. I do really like Brad's playing in Aussie, though. And of the Aussie gunslingers, he's very positive about his experience. So I'll roll a clip of him here came to New York, they flew me out there, and they were doing Madison Square Gardens that night with Bernie Torme on, on guitar, who was just in the intern before uh, the next guitar player, which was me, stepped in. And when I got to the hotel, they were at still at, I got in about 11 o'clock at night, they were still at the venue, and I got in, I was supposed to have a room, and there was no room under my name. Uh, 
I didn't, I didn't even have a credit card. I had $150 on me, and the room was $135. I paid cash for the room. I didn't have a room. I thought, oh, my God. I had $15. My name went inside my room. All of a sudden, I got a call about midnight from Larry McNeedy, the road manager, saying, we're all upstairs in the penthouse. Come up and meet everybody. And I said, okay. And went in and knocked on the door and opened the door to this big penthouse, and there was like 20 or 30 guys. There was like 50 people in there, but like 20 guys looked like they were guitar players. Maybe they were auditioning. And Larry, the road manager, said, hey, man, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Everything okay? I said, yeah, I had to pay cash for my room. Didn't have a reservation. He gave me five $100 bills. He goes, does this work? I went, this is fine. Come in and meet Ozzy. I said, how many of these guys are auditioning? He goes, no, dude, it's just you, man. They're all like press and stuff. I said, really? Met Ozzy. Ozzy was kind of out of it. You know, oh, Bradley, go get your guitar. So I ran. I go, I don't have an amp. Go get your guitar. So I went and ran down and got my guitar, came back up. And he had this big living room with big windows overlooking Manhattan, the big penthouse at the Helmsley Palace. And uh, we walked upstairs to the stairwell to go into his bedroom for me audition with him. And uh, so Ozzy, I sit up, he closes the door to the master bedroom suite. I sit at the end of the bed with my guitar, no amp. He sits on the floor cross-legged in front of me and goes, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's do Flying High again because it had the good tapping solo in it. So I started playing. He's on the ground going, oh, no, oh, no. You know, looking up at me, you know. Gosh, right? Got to the solo. I did the tapping thing. He jumped. I jumped up. He jumped up. Gave me a hug. He goes, Bradley, pull me through. I love you. I said, well, I'm here, man, you know. He opened the door, looked down at all these 50 people and says, I've got a new guitar player. So I walked down, presses all over me. And so then I went on the road with him for uh went on the road with them but the first four days I had a Randy Rhodes cassette board tape and they gave me a little cassette player and a little amplifier and every day I'd rehearse go over the stuff until the gig and then I'd you know go watch the gig then we get on the bus go to the next city get in get up in the morning 8 o'clock rehearse till you know the gig and after the fourth day I said I was ready and we were in Binghamton that was my first show on the fifth night loads of clips in this show huh I've been told you listeners really dig that aspect of the show, so I'll try to find as many as I can out there. And yeah, Brad Gillis, class dude. He sticks around for a pretty solid cycle with Ozzy too. Some iconic Ozzy Osbourne shows with him on the sixth string. From April 13th right through to mid-August, they even sneak in a few Canadian dates here and there, and a Japan tour of duty too, all within four months. So a whirlwind for Gillis, to say the least. And he holds his own too, but Ozzy, of course, is a absolute fucking wreck at this point and actually I recall I think Brad Gillis told this story but there was a great one about Ozzy disappearing before one of the gigs not being at soundcheck and then showing up half in the bag with his head and <laughs> shaved I'm sure you've all seen pictures of the shaved Ozzy era right it's quite fucking jarring if you haven't but especially at first because he, he goes right down to the flesh like full 12 monkey style it's very disturbing that first gig that he would have showed up like that they ended up finding him a wig so as not to alarm the audience. And the story that Gillis told was that Ozzy decided that it would be a riot if he put ketchup underneath where the wig went and then ripped it off to trick the audience into thinking he was scalping himself on stage. Pretty on-point gimmick there. Uh, Tensions were high in the Ozzy camp. Everyone was still reeling from the Randy accident. And shit between the Arden clan, like Don, David, and Sharon, that had also soured to the point of no return. We haven't fully been chronicling the Arden's trajectories, really since the first episode, but the real badass Sharon Osbourne 
rises here in 1982, she starts to really take the reins with Ozzy's bookings and PR, and in turn sets up an escape for her and Ozzy from the clutches of the dawn. Which brings us to the shady little project entitled Speak of the Devil, or Talk of the Devil, if you're on the proper side of the pond. Now, there are two releases in the Aussie canon known as Speak of the Devil. In fact, the entire Gillis tour is known by that same moniker as well, the 1982 Speak of the Devil tour. So it can be a little bit confusing for someone like myself who wasn't alive during this time and didn't chronicle it firsthand, and I'm searching for material and reading articles to find out which Speak is which. And There are two main releases, though, representing this era, if you will. So the first release was an absolutely killer Aussie live capture, an outdoor performance recorded on June 23rd at Irvine Meadows Amphitheater in Irvine, California. The recording was done by MTV and later broadcast under the title MTV Halloween Live from Irvine. The video version of that release, however, was called Speak of the Devil and had the same kind of cover art as the double album. The set played there has no relation to the double album of the same name, as the MTV broadcast was the original Aussie set with a couple of Sabs thrown in, but this double album that I'm talking about here, it was all Sabbath covers. So in the grand tradition of the Deep Dive Podcast Network, let's pull the deepest cut from that show. I'm talking about the double album here. It's also the freshest Sabbath track. Never say die. Gillis is fucking ripping. I told you he was a stud. And we gotta get some Never Say Die Love in there too. I love that album. What a killer song. Underrated as fuck. It is claimed, or kind of retconned by the current Aussie machine, that the idea behind the Speak of the Devil double album was originally gonna be a tribute to Randy Rhodes, but Ozzy thought it was too soon after his death to release that kind of material. So they did an all Sabbath cover album instead, out of respect for Randy. And if you believe that shit, well, you're drinking more Aussie Kool-Aid than me, man. (laughs) The whole fucking deal for this concept album was in place well before Randy died for some logistical reasons or songwrite stuff that I don't understand. The Ardens needed to get a full album of Sabbath material recorded by Ozzy in order to make money off of his own Sabbath properties or some shit like that. I can't figure it out. If someone wants to give me the lowdown on what the Speak of the Devil thing is, like the Speak of the Devil for dummies, <laughs> it would be much appreciated, because I don't know at all. It has been rumored, though, that Randy was kind of holding up the project from ever happening, as he didn't want to do the Sab songs. He wanted to do an original set. And that's what makes it even nastier, if that's the case, that this was done right after Rhodes had died. They almost immediately went ahead with this dirty deed here. <laughs> like I said... 
I might be missing something in the whole story here, but as I gather, the album was nothing more than an asset renewal scam for the Ardens and Sabbath. But putting aside that part of it, and just listening to the records, there's also all kinds of shady shit going on in the production here that we should cover. A lot of patchwork to get this release out quickly and sounding decent. Let's go to the texts here first, with a reading from Off the Rails by Rudy Sarzo. He talks a little bit about the production of this record and how he had a very icky feeling right from the get-go here. And I know I was hard on Rudy's book last time I read from it, but I've pulled some more specific selects this time, cut out some of the phony dialogue, so we can just get an idea of how Rudy was feeling at the time. Rudy writes, Tommy, Brad, and I started rehearsals at a gloomy midtown Manhattan studio. We had only five days to learn Symptom of the Universe, Snowblind, Black Sabbath, Fairies Wear Boots, War Pigs, The Wizard, NIB, Sweet Leaf, Never Say Die, and Sabbath Bully Sabbath. Since I wasn't very familiar with the songs we were learning, I continuously struggled to make some sense out of Black Sabbath's convoluted arrangements with their erratic tempos and rhythm changes. A complete contrast to Randy's flowing writing style. One afternoon, we continued rehearsing without Ozzy. We were plodding through the monotonous, diminished riff of the song Black Sabbath when I realized how low the band's morale had sunk. Here we were rehearsing for one of Ozzy's records, and he didn't even bother to show up once. If there was ever any doubt about me leaving the band, going through these rehearsals removed them. On September 26th and 27th, we recorded Speak of the Devil live at the Ritz in New York City in front of a rowdy, sold-out crowd. On the afternoon of the 26th, we began our sound check with Ozzy finally surfacing, and since he hadn't rehearsed with us, he experienced difficulties remembering the lyrics that he had sung so many times with Black Sabbath. With no time to go to a music store and purchase a stand, Ozzy grabbed a folding chair and placed it next to him in front of the stage. He then put a desk lamp on top of the chair to light up the pages of a notebook where he had scribbled his lyrics, or Geezer's lyrics. So I'm going to close Rudy's recollections off there, and I'm going to go to a clip from another favorite source of ours, The Double Stop, an interview from that podcast here with Max Norman, as Max was hired to come in with the recording truck that they were using to capture these sets and run the show. He talks about how all the phony production tricks happened and went down, because this is a goddamn Frankenstein monster of an album when you actually look at how it's laid out, more so than even like Kiss Alive or Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous, where they were just pumping in sound effects and doing a couple of overdubs. Speak of the Devil didn't even have a fucking crowd at some points of it, as Max will tell you here. I said to Ozzy, um, look, why don't we, you know, we don't know, we've only got a limited amount of live materials, you know, as far as how many shows you're going to do. And normally with a live record, you know, you, you like to have a few different shows so you can cut over to something else if, they, you know, somebody screws up or, you know, it's not a particularly good performance. So I said, look, uh, why don't we record the whole thing in the afternoon? And then I got a backup if I need to substitute something or if I need to go pick something up, we can, you know, maybe we can cut it in or at least we'll, at least we'll have a bit of insurance. Sure. So uh, we did do that. Um, we recorded the whole thing uh, the afternoon before that show, I think. And in fact, I think, I believe there are uh, four or five songs on that record that we did take from the afternoon performance, which was to an empty hall. Uh, so I had to correct the, um, I had to correct the ambience because I had to put people into the ambience basically to absorb, you know, so of course it, the, the, uh, 
the ambient mics were I had to change the EQ on them and dull them out a bit and I had to add audience and uh, try to match them up to the uh, actual you know sound on the live show itself but uh, I think there's um, yeah four or five of those tracks actually came from the afternoon performances and we kind of you know switched them in there um i we uh we redid all the vocals i think on that yeah. uh, that black sabbath thing um so which you could probably tell so we had to we did it in a real hurry it was mixed and we did the vocals and mixed it in four days and uh i think there's four sides to that record it's a double album so uh i did it up at the uh record plant um and uh, i mixed it uh, the the I hated the main speakers in there, so I mixed it on a pair of Auratones. And uh, as we got to the third track, I mean the third side, they were already mastering the uh, first side over in another part of the building there. So uh, we had that album, uh, we had that album recorded, dubbed, cut, mixed, and mastered in probably about a week. So all that phony production stuff aside, you know what? It really doesn't bother me as much as it does some people like i like the sounds of this album regardless of it being faked or not and honestly live albums aren't really my jam so i'm not a purist when it comes to them i mean outside of ozzy and sabbath stuff and like pantera's 101 proof i don't really put on live performances very regularly but the album this one speak of the devil as a contract killer it did its job renewing the sabbath songs and also freeing ozzy and sharon from the clutches of don arden it killed off the Jet Records contract, too, being a double album. And this is pretty much when the big split happens in the Arden family. It had, of course, been building for some time with Ozzy and Sharon's romantic relationship also accelerating the process. But Sharon had grown to hating her father's mobster ways. And so she took over the role as Ozzy's manager by buying the contract for Ozzy out from underneath her father. And to rub salt in Don's wounds... Those two crazy cats get hitched July 4th, 1982 in Hawaii. And I think the Don would have been at the wedding, but he certainly didn't like the idea of his daughter betting the talent here. After the wedding, Ozzy and the boys go back out on tour, supporting this live album with several dates in the United Kingdom in December. And around this time, Rudy Sarzo, our good friend, he decides to quit the band. He had already been kind of recording on the side with his old band, Quiet Riot who were getting very big at this point with the metal health record in the works. Rudy laid down bass tracks on that. And once Rudy leaves here, he doesn't return. So let's raise our now watered down cocktail to our favorite Cuban sensation, the four string motherfucker, Rudy. Love you, brother. So it was Sarzo back to his old outfit on pretty short notice, too. They quickly brought in a replacement bassist so they didn't have to cancel any dates here. We now get an absolute, almost fucking Aussie-level madman in Pete Way, bassist from the legendary group UFO. He was called to fill in for this UK tour as him and Aussie were already tight. They'd party together and stuff. Now, I never really fucked with UFO. I remember Kirk Hammett and the Metallica boys always saying that they were a major influence on them. And, of course, I know the big hits... Yeah, Rock Bottom, uh, Natural Thing, I know that one. It wasn't until my friend Joe, though, over at Black Sabbath Online, he recommended that I check out the solo project called Wasted. And I fucking love it. He gave me a little playlist. Just some nice, dirty, fucking hard rock. So Pete jumps in to fill in for Sarzo, and 
there's some other shifts here too in the lineup, but it all kind of spills over into the next year, to be honest. So we'll save that for next episode. So there you go. Uh, thanks again for joining me. <laughs> a packed installment. It took two and a half fucking salty dogs to get through it. And a lot of ice. <laughs> but we did it. We'll see if I can keep this under time too in the edit. It doesn't look like I will be able to, but might be a little bit over the half hour mark, but that's okay. You're still here, right? <laughs> if you are, get in touch with me on Twitter at SabbathBloodyPC. Email me, SabbathBloodyPodcast at gmail.com. Can you hear those church bells chiming? Yeah, that's God telling you to give me five star reviews over on Apple Podcasts. That's the key to keeping this shit alive, really. Like, the more reviews I get, the more people listen to the show, the more people give me feedback, and the more I feel like doing these things. So, all right, keep a tight ass out there, and I'll see you. I'll see you on the other side.